our culture maintains a beautiful public world. Beautiful architecture, beautiful restaurants, delicious coffee, wonderfully convenient roads and signage, polite servers and employees, gentle Siri voices that guide you to your destination, and the promise of neatly arranged and beautiful products to enhance your beautiful life. This beautiful world is maintained by a vision of culture in which the public sphere continues to improve, becoming more beautiful, more liberal, more democratic, allowing the radical individual to pursue their desires to the fullest. The public square is clearly defined. There is appropriate language, appropriate dress, and appropriate decorum for engaging in it. But as soon as we enter the doors of our neatly arranged and beautifully manicured homes, something changes. The clearly defined public life begins to dissolve into our private spheres. In our private lives, facts, meanings, rules, and received traditions are subject to the will of the individual. Our private lives do not have the accountability or clearly defined appropriate behaviors and decorum of the public sphere. After all, you're supposed to self-define and self-create. The private world then becomes unstable. And into this unstable world floods temptations, enticements, and Jeremy's word he gave me this week, allurements that can fit any size or any taste. Our private worlds then are filled with secret sins, addictions, and freedoms that we indulge without the peering eyes of others. This is a dichotomous life, and it's another way that our culture forms us, where we are clean and appropriate for our public worlds, but our private lives are sort of like the Wild West. I think of the classic movie-turned-TV show Westworld. Anybody seen Westworld? Wow, like four of us. Wow. Anyways, Westworld is a Wild West-styled theme park where the attractions are actually robots programmed to not hurt you. So the cowboys, the Indians, the saloon, the, you know, the animals, all the horses you ride, whatever, they're all robots and they're specifically designed to not hurt you. If you haven't watched the show, well, clearly none of y'all even care about it, so I don't feel like I'm ruining anything in here this morning. But you can do whatever you want in this Wild West-styled uh, theme park because no one's going to hurt you and nothing's going to act out against you. So you then can act out all of your Wild West desires and fantasies without repercussions. And this is kind of the same script that our culture gives us. Engage the public world in a way that you have to, but there are no limits when it comes to your personal life. It's your own Wild West-styled theme park. As long as you're not hurting another, continue. You do you. The glaring issue is that our culture demands that we do separate from our being. So whatever you are in private, fine. Let it exist and live there. But what you are in the public needs to be appropriate. Act this way, dress this way, talk this way, think this way. Our public life then must become a veneer and a mask that we wear in the name of appropriateness, but not the joyful expression of our private lives. We need an alternative way of life. 
The church must be the alternative to this kind of deforming life. Richard Bauckham says in his book, Bible and Mission, Paul's account of the cross as the critical test of the content of the church's witness is also an account of the cross as the critical test of the form of the church's witness. What he's saying there is that the content of the cross must also be the form of the church. Paul showed us that in his cross-shaped life, what he talked about in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4, a life devoted to the gospel, and then again in chapter 9, it's a life lived in service to others. It's a life marked by joyfully taking up our cross and living like Christ, which is marked by an outward orientation for others. Paul laid down his rights for the gospel. He said, I'll become all things to all people so that some might hear about Jesus Christ. And I don't have to take up my rights and receive money from you. This is all from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm sure you all memorized it and remember it very well. But that's what he said all throughout chapter 9. And this is the kind of life that we're supposed to live because the content of the cross needs to be the form of the church. The way that we live must be cross-shaped. Bauckham continues that the church's mission is inseparable from the church's community life as the living of an alternative way in contradistinction to its socio-cultural context is vital for us to understand. And if you don't understand the words I just said, that's okay. What Richard Bauckham is saying is that we cannot look like our culture. Our church cannot look like our culture. It has to be contradistinctive. We have to look opposite and different from the way that our culture operates. So being formed by Christ at our roots is not just another way of life that we can neatly fit into what we're about and what we're doing. It's a transformational life that upends and reorients all of us around the person of Jesus. But more than being consistent... Okay, because what's going to happen there when we upend and reorient our lives around Jesus is that our private lives and our public lives will become consistent. But more than being consistent, our lives should look completely different than our worlds. Our lives cannot be lived out of a set of cultural values and assertions. They must instead be reformed by Christ through a growing relationship with him. This relationship will prioritize being with him. Being with him, not just doing for him. Being with him will then produce a net result of doing for God because once we've been with God, then we can go and do. And Jesus modeled this throughout his entire ministry. You guys know how old he was when he began his ministry? He was 30 years old. He didn't, he didn't start his ministry until he had been, until he had understood what God wanted next, until what he was being led towards. And even then, after he started his ministry, there are multiple times we see in the gospel accounts where he takes time in silence and in solitude with the Father before he returns back. He did this with his disciples as well. The whole point of, of gathering his disciples is so they could be with him in order to be sent out. They had to be with God first, and we have to embody this way of living. And that's why we've spent some, um, some time talking about the resistance practices I've named them. The resistance practices are Sabbath, slowing down, silent prayer, interior examination, and the other well-worn spiritual habits that we know about, like scripture, memory, reading your Bible, prayer, attending church, tithing. That's a spiritual habit, by the way, tithing. 
um, uh, investing in your community, service to others, whatever it might be that we kind of understand we know we're supposed to be doing, those spiritual habits and the resistance practices are the way that we embody and become the living alternative to our world. These are the ways we get into God's presence before we do for him. But we don't just live different lives in a holy cloister put off away somewhere else as if Jesus only cares about your private inner world. Jesus wants your whole life, all of you, what you do in private and what you do in public. And if our whole lives are being shaped and molded after him, once that shaping begins to occur, we then come from a different place of identity in Christ to then be Christ for others. So then we can enter the public spheres of our lives, armed with our personal renewal in Jesus as we've been with him, to then go on mission for Jesus, which is to make disciples who? So we must become witnesses in our world and to our world for the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. In the opening of Acts, Luke reiterates the disciples' mission. And then Jesus ascends up into heaven. Mark Sayers says in Reappearing Church, this departure initially seems to run against the grain of God's plan to fill the world with his presence. But as Anthony J. Kelly writes, this leaving, this ascension is key to his plan to fill the world with his glory. Anthony J. Kelly says, he is then taken up into the luminous clouds of God's presence, no longer to be found in the time and space of his early life in Palestine. In his ascended existence, he now fills all time and space and inhabits every dimension of reality, from the highest realm of the infinite Godhead to the mundane, agonizing reality of created existence. The ascension opens the space in which believers themselves begin to inhabit a new sphere of transformed existence. Jesus entered into God's full presence through the veil. We just sang about it a minute ago, creating the ability for us to have access to God through relationship as Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up, for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We then, like Jesus, now must enter into God's presence to then engage our world. It's exactly what the disciples had to be reminded as soon as Jesus ascended because they're all just doing this. Where'd he go? So then, the disciples, unaware of this truth that Hebrews would later expound, they're just gazing upward. And an angel comes to reorient their intense vertical gaze. An angel tells them, he's not here. He's he's gone. He's up there. He'll be with you. Okay? And the disciples' gaze, as Mark Sayers says, must now be horizontal out into the world. Their posture is to be an active one, reconnected with the original mandate given to Adam and Eve. They are to go out into the world. And this is precisely what Jesus told them in the beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my... In Jerusalem, 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are to be witnesses. A witness is a person who testifies to the truth for which they are qualified to give evidence. At the commissioning of the disciples in Acts, Jesus calls his closest followers to become those who tell the story of Jesus for which they are uniquely qualified to give evidence. But witness is a twofold expression for the follower of Jesus. It's not merely telling the story or bearing witness. It's the embodying of that story as well. Jesus wants us to bear witness, yes, tell the story, but our lives must also be witnesses to the transforming power of the story of Jesus in our own lives. Just as the disciples were commissioned to this, so are we. Be with Jesus and then do for him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So local, a little less local, a little less local, and then to the ends of the earth. So our identity must be formed by Christ at our roots because we aren't to merely bear witness to the story. We aren't merely to share it. Our lives, our whole lives, must be a witness to the fact that Jesus lives in us and changes us from the inside out. This is our mission as disciples. Mission comes from identity. Your identity in Christ is not the roles in your life. I'm a father, I'm a mother, I'm a worker, I'm a you know, funny guy, I'm a whatever you are. Whatever you think of yourself as, those are just roles, those are just things that you do, but your identity is who God says you are. God says you are his child. You are his image bearer. That is your identity. And it's so important for us to grasp this because in our private lives, we try to shape and reform who we are all the time. God gives us a concrete identity out of which to live to then enter our public spheres. And the more that we can get Jesus in our private lives, the more that we will be impactful for the kingdom. Rich Velotis says in the deeply formed life, the deeply formed mission is fundamental, sorry, fundamentally about becoming a particular person and offering that to the world. This kind of mission is not just about activity. It's about being Christ for another. He goes on to say that mission is first about who we are becoming before what we are doing, because the quality of our presence is our mission. The quality of our presence is our mission. How present to you, sorry, how present are you to yourself? How many of you took time this week to do some interior examination? How many of you took time this week out for Sabbath? How many of you took time out this week to take time for yourself? Secondly, how many of you took time this week to then be present with another person? I don't mean a meeting. You can be present in a meeting, but that's obligation time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about did you seek somebody out to be present with because the quality of our presence is our mission. Jesus models this for us once again. In Scripture, there is never a moment that he, the Father, and the Spirit are not moving towards the world in love. On the Catholic calendar today, it is Trinity Sunday. Did you guys know that? It's Trinity Sunday. Today, we should recognize that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all equal, co-equals together. One is not submissive to the other. Whoa. 
One is not submissive to the other. They are all co-equals working together to offer unlimited love. From Genesis to Revelation, we encounter a God who refuses to be without his people. Now, in the triunity, the Trinity exists perfectly. They don't need anybody. They have a perfect relationship of life and love together. But they want you and I. That's a big deal. From Genesis to Revelation, we encounter a God who refuses to be without his people. He is present to the world, offering us himself all of the time. John 3:16. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is the way that God loves us. His posture is towards you. Yes, absolutely. And the person with whom you disagree. And your enemy, as Jesus says in his seminal teaching, love your enemy and pray for them. Jesus is also for, God is also for, the Spirit are also for the people that you never think to think about as well. If this is what Jesus is like, then we must embody the same posture in order for our lives to be witnesses of Jesus' transformation within us. Rich Velotis once again challenged me with this quote. When we see people with a Make America Great Again hat, we can see them from a posture of God's commitment toward them or from the perspective of our own boundary making. When we see a woman of color with a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, we can see her through the lens of God's heart, of mercy towards her, or reduce her entire humanity to a hashtag. When we see an immigrant, we can see him through the lens of God's tender love or through the lens of fearful scapegoating. The real posture of Jesus And the life of real witness for Jesus must be a people who do not create boundaries around who receives my love. We must become those who go beyond what's comfortable to make relationships, to make space and grace for others. And from that being, we can then bear witness to the gospel and love of Jesus for the others of life. A witness truly believes that Jesus loves the whole world. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting how many people? Anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So we've got to check our hearts and perceive where maybe we have some prejudice against the others of life. Because there is no space in the kingdom of God for prejudicial nonsense. Paul declares the tradition that he passed down to all of the churches in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is who we are. And from there, we can then act. And if Galatians 3.28 is not your defining script, then something else is forming you. We are one in Christ. And that must be on display through us because the church has historically been and must remain the living alternative to a world that forces the divisions of ethnicity, genders, and socioeconomic statuses. And when the church has been wrong, it has colluded with the powers to do the same. 
As much as the rhetoric of inclusion is thrown around, the party lines still exist. The church must transcend this. It must transcend the rhetoric to actually embody the love of Jesus for all. And this can only happen from a place of identity in him. Because if something else is making my identity, if something else is forming me, if my cultural scripts that are giving to me are not about what the gospel is about, then it won't be lived out in my life. Christian atheist Douglas Murray, yeah, I know, it's weird, that's what he calls himself. Douglas Murray says that Christianity has the grandest narrative of all time. And yet the church is unable to live into and accurately tell its own story of redemption through Jesus. That was in a recent interview he did with um, N.T. Wright. That is quite the indictment. Basically what he said is that the church is failing to be witnesses, failing to be witnesses of Jesus in their lives, and they aren't bearing witness to the world. And this is why we have to, we have to embody the living alternative to our world. From our posture of love and being with Christ first, we can then engage. So let's talk about how we can engage from our being. One of the best ways is through the practice of hospitality. This is what's wild to me. When we talk about what it means to live for Jesus, I think we think it's some spectacular, crazy thing. It's really not. It's making a meal for somebody. You know what I mean? That's, that's what it looks like. It's really, it's really not this crazy thing. It just means I'm spending some time in silence with Jesus. That might sound crazy, but it doesn't look crazy, and it's not creating this huge ripple impact yet. But once Jesus is with us and we're with him, then from our being we can go to do one of the best ways to do this is through hospitality. Hospitality is an enfleshed way, which I hate that word. It's an enfleshed way of producing welcome. It's a way of saying, you belong here. But not only that, it's good that you're here. I enjoy you. Hospitality creates space for people. It's a direct practice of our witness because it invites the other in. It's a posture of purposeful presence with another. No agenda, no have-tos. Just being. Jesus was the most hospitable person on earth, yet he did not have a home. So it's not just homemaking, although that's an element. Jesus was able to welcome people in. Who was he friends with? Sinners and tax collectors. Jesus doesn't have a problem welcoming the others of life. One of his disciples was a tax collector. Another couple of them were zealots who wanted to kill the tax collector. And Jesus yet is able to hold this all together because he opened himself up for other people. Hospitality, in short, is making myself present to others. I want you to imagine a safe harbor for ships. This is the place where a ship can come to rest, receive attention and care, and be refilled for its next journey. Hospitality says to the others that I am a safe harbor. It says that you can find safety, healing, and respite with me. I will not judge you. I will not speak down to you. You're here, and it's good that you're here. Being open to another person's life is actually countercultural. Our, our culture wants you to care for yourself and develop you, but it doesn't have space, not truly, for the others of life. 
It wants to believe it has the space for those who disagree, but in reality, it doesn't. Our hospitality, where we make space for those with whom we disagree, then we love them and share Jesus with them, will mark us as distinct from our worlds. The church is the place on earth that fosters relationships between rich and poor, different ethnicities and genders. As Spurgeon declared, it is the dearest place on earth. So the objective of hospitality is not to corner and convert. As if you could convert anybody anyways. The reason we are hospitable is to open our hearts to others in the way that God has opened his heart to us. Isn't it easy to see what the other does wrong? It's a lot less easy to see where I'm wrong and what God shows both the other and me is that we're all sinful and need him. And yet he accepts us all the same, so we should take on the same posture, making the church the dearest place on earth. The more homogenous a church, the more in trouble we are, because the kingdom of God looks like all colors, and it looks like all peoples. So the reason we are hospitable is to open our hearts to others in the way that God has opened his heart to us. And in so doing, we create a place for others to just be because the quality of our presence is our mission. Now they, when they're with us, will witness our witness to Jesus in us. This then gives us a prime opportunity to wisely find a way to share Jesus in a non-coercive and non-transactional way. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Hospitality must then become a way of life, a way of being towards others. From our being with Jesus, we then look for ways to incorporate actions like dinner dates with neighbors, intentional conversations with coworkers where you're asking them, not about the budget or about the email that you sent, but about them, who they are, and invitations maybe to our life events, just to name a few things. The relationships that we form through hospitality will never be about an end game, but a person to know and to love the way that Jesus does, because we are to be Christ for another in our world. The next practice that embodies the living alternative to our world must be truth-telling. This one's tricky. This one's really tricky. Our task in truth-telling first must be rooted in our imitation of God and his missional posture and hospitality towards us and others. Therefore, we are for others when we speak the truth. Therefore, our truth-telling must align with the timeless words of Paul from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in... We will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head that is in Christ. And if you're not speaking the truth in love, you're not mature. That's what it just said. Paul continues by preaching the rest of my sermon today in three sentences. Anyways, Ephesians 4.17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. What this really means is the culture. 
Then he goes on in verses 21 through 24. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, being with Jesus. That's what that means. We take off our old self and we put on Christ at every moment. This is the place from which we must be speaking truth. Love and life rooted in Christ. Being with him first. Mission comes from our being and the quality of our mission will be one and the same as the quality of our presence to God. Now, I wish I could give you specific examples of what it means to truth tell, particularly in, that culture, in our culture, but that list would go on forever because every situation is as varied as the context it's in. So let me give you a definition of Christian truth-telling. Truth-telling. It means that we oppose the powers and principalities that set themselves against humanity and against God. We oppose the ways that the powers of our world exploit, use, harm, lie, and form us that do not line up with the truth of Christ in the gospel. And this is all done in love. This means that we will often, we will often find ourselves politically and ideologically homeless. You know why? Because our home is not of this world. Our home is in allegiance to Christ alone. So we cannot follow anyone or anything blindly for the sake of expedient efficiency. Because nothing good comes easy. Everything good in your life is process. Expedient efficiency is not the direct route to the kingdom. Rather, process through allegiance to Jesus is the route to the kingdom. Jesus shows us that in a slow life, three years with his disciples before he's ready for the cross. So when an idea opposes God, we oppose it and we explain to our culture and to our neighbors why. It's unbiblical for these reasons. I cannot align with it for these reasons. This means that even when our political bloc that we support supports something that we cannot, you must oppose it and explain to your culture and neighbors why it's unbiblical. Now, this is a nuanced way of life that's lived based upon the principles and ethic of the kingdom of God, not the systems and powers of our world. We must uh, take our cues from Daniel and his three friends in the Old Testament. They were forcibly taken from their home in Jerusalem to Babylon to live in exile. There they had to support this anti-God empire until they couldn't. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den for praying to Yahweh. Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in a fiery furnace because they didn't bow down to the idol of power in the image of King Nebuchadnezzar. They lived a life of witness where they acted and spoke the truth from their being with God. Daniel, Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego were all shaped and formed by their time with God before they ever acted. From their identity, they were able to support the government where it supported human flourishing and opposed it when it violated their allegiance to Yahweh God. We must also take our cues from the martyrs of Revelation. John says in Revelation 6-9, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the, the witness. 
which they held. They were killed because of their prophetic truth-telling. Jesus is Lord was their truth-telling testimony. And this declaration enraged the powers, so they took their lives. In fact, the word martyr in English comes from the Greek martus, which means witness. It's fitting because it's a wholly consistent life to live the message of Christ all the way to death. But even though they lost their lives, their witness to Christ is the very thing which defeats the powers of this world that are animated by Satan. John says in Revelation 12:11, speaking about the martyrs, they triumphed over him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Faithful witness over comes Satan by the blood of Jesus and by the word of our testimony. The injustice done to the martyrs becomes then a message to our world that the witnesses of Jesus are truly transformed. They don't react in violence. They lay down their lives. They don't return evil with evil, slander with slander, rudeness with rudeness. They speak truth in love. This is how we overcome our world, our sin, our flesh, and the devil by being a witness with our lives and bearing witness with our words. Truth-telling requires a deep life of being with Christ. It requires humility and nuance. The exact thing you don't see on Facebook and Twitter and on Fox News and CNN and wherever else you turn your news channel to. Humility and nuance. It requires wisdom and quiet more than speaking. It requires engaging in moments that matter with people that you can impact. We must ask ourselves if the truth we are expressing comes from our cultural formation or from a life in Christ. This will be the test of what should be said versus what should be repented of. Now the last way that we embody the living alternative to our world then is to announce the gospel by bearing witness to Jesus. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the recognition that Jesus is Lord over all things and it invites us to a life free from the shackles and bondage of sin. This Jesus also calls us to then join him in the power of the Spirit, of course, in being a liberating presence to the world around us, both spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. Again, we must become to do, because mission comes from identity, and bearing witness to the gospel is certainly a part of every believer's mission. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 20, For Christ's love compels us, I wish that were so more often in my own life. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of making things right. Reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, those who embody and live out an alternative to our world. We are ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. An ambassador is a witness on mission. This kind of life is exactly what I'm talking about. A life oriented and framed around being with Jesus first so that we can then go do for him. Now I want you to notice what Paul didn't do here in announcing the gospel. He didn't quote the Romans road. Our attempts to bear witness to the gospel must not be transactional and coercive. Unfortunately, the wonderful tools that we have, like the Romans Road, the sinner's prayer, the colored bracelets, whatever method that you used to use, have become, as Veloda says, formulaic steps that don't compassionately consider the particular blockages that keep people from relationship with God. I'm now going to be a complete Baptist preacher and read from you a book. This is The Deeply Formed Life, and it's phenomenal. I'm going to read for you just a page here. In my early years as a Christian, I was taught various models of evangelism. The models are often rooted in solid biblical truth, but the attempt to scale and make evangelism accessible to everyone turns the announcing of the gospel into a stale and transaction-oriented encounter. This approach also keeps us in control, bringing out rehearsed solutions to a problem we know little about. But the announcing of the gospel is a practice that requires careful discernment, compassionate curiosity, and a willingness to step beyond a transaction of faith. In his book, Faithful Presence, David Fitch wrote about preaching the gospel. He made a particularly salient point about control. Proclaiming the gospel is a profoundly decentering experience that places the hearer in submission to God. It is the opposite of being in control. Proclaiming the gospel starts with, are you hopeless? Are you caught in a world gone wrong? Have you become caught up in sin? Are you powerless? Are you being destroyed by the world, by injustice? The gospel is that God has come in Jesus Christ and defeated the powers. God has made Jesus Lord. He therefore rules and is working in all your circumstances, personal and in the world. Will you give up your control? Submit to Jesus as Lord and participate in this new world? The question that Fitch laid out, Questions that Fitch laid out are not to be used as a template per se, but they offer a different starting point for announcing the gospel. The truth is every person we come into contact with has experienced, is experiencing, or will experience significant pain. Every person will eventually feel stuck and long to escape. Every person at some point will undergo a powerlessness that leads to despair. As we offer our presence, lovingly and patiently listening to others, we will find ourselves in a better space to non-coercively offer words of hope, announcing that Christ is present and worthy of trust. To announce the gospel is a deeply formed way that moves us beyond techniques and one-size-fits-all strategies. As Jesus perfectly modeled, we are called to open ourselves to joining the journeys of others, building relationships, discerning openness, and announcing the news of God's loving presence and commitment toward them. This is not cookie-cutter evangelism. And we will find ourselves unsure of how to move forward. But this is the nature of faith, isn't it? (laughs) So good. Y'all need to buy this book. Now, I love the tools. But they're just that. They're tools. They don't accomplish salvation, and neither do we. God does that alone. 
So we must consider how to engage with particular people in their particular context in order for them to truly hear and receive Jesus as Lord. And I think many of us are hesitant to share the, go- the gospel precisely because we don't have the tools memorized. But that proves the point. We want to be in control. And we want to make it about, okay, we finished that thing. What are you going to do? And if the person doesn't respond positively, never to speak to them again. This is not the way the gospel should be delivered. It should be delivered from a place of hospitality where we're open to the other. We've so focused on the doing that we've forsaken the being with others. Our hospitality and truth-telling and love will buy us the right to bear witness to the gospel. The tools are wonderful. Utilize them, absolutely. Learn the Romans Road. Learn forms of evangelism so that you have doctrinally accurate ways of speaking about how Jesus has done everything we just read about in this book. But recognize and remember that each person must be reached in a way that honors them and best conveys God's love for them. These practices of hospitality, of truth-telling, and announcing the gospel will help us to embody the living alternative way of our world. These practices entrench us in a way of being before we go about doing, because being a witness is twofold. Your life is a witness to Jesus' transformational power in you so that you can bear witness to the gospel of Christ. Christ will reform us through the spiritual disciplines and resistance practices that we've been talking through and know well. He will guide us to an integrated private and public life where our doing comes from our being. This is what he wants from you and for you. He wants wholeness in your life. The church has a wonderful opportunity to be the living alternative to our world systems. This is how we will be renewed. Now, imagine your life as a witness to the ways that you are being formed into the image of Jesus. Imagine applying the resistance practices as an alternative way of living, where you're slowing down, where you're taking Sabbath, where you're in silent prayer before you shoot off and begin to yell at God about what's going on in your life, where we begin to look internally and do some examination of our own feelings, reactions, trauma, patterns, scripts, all the things that we spoke about last week. We become aware of them and begin to assess ourselves against the measurement of the word of God. Imagine bearing witness to Christ from a whole and genuine place of contented rest in God's presence. Imagine speaking the truth and love and acting as an ambassador, a witness on mission of reconciliation. Imagine seeing the ways that God restores your neighbors and communities as you share your life through hospitality. Imagine leading someone to Christ as you tell the grand story of Jesus and as you live it out. Imagine this kind of rooted existence. Finally, imagine a life of such partnership with the Spirit that the power of God moves through you to impact your world. That's what's on offer to us. Acts 1 8, one more time. But you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. How many of us are powerless because we're not partnered? It's because we're not in His presence. We have to be with God in order to do for Him.
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we know that they accomplished it because later on in Acts, the disciples and the followers of Christ, one of the charges leveled against them that they've turned the world upside down. That's our mission. May God, through the transforming power of his spirit, form our lives into witnesses as we bear and become the message of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your presence. Help us to embody and to live out and to exercise these spiritual practices so that we become a living alternative to the world and the systems around us. We no longer want to be formed by the powers at be. I pray for every heart in this room that we would begin to think about what a committed life to Jesus in this kind of way might look like. I'm praying in advance of next week as we talk about what's coming next, what a, what a radical commitment looks like to become and do this, this resisted kind of life to our culture, what it actually looks like and feels like. I, I, I pray for hearts now that we would begin to start asking ourselves the deep questions. Are we doing interior examination, really? Are we slowing down and practicing Sabbath? Are we reading our Bibles? Are we praying? Are we doing the spiritual practices that form us into the people of God and from our being then become more like him? And as we become more like you, Father, I pray that we would then see what's next to go and do for you. But don't let us race off and remember you about halfway through. Instead, help us to center ourselves on your word and on your presence first so that from our being we can then go and act. I pray that we would become witnesses. That our lives would bear witness. Our lives would be witnesses. By the way that we love. By the way that we show hospitality. By the way that we announce the gospel. By the way that we posture ourselves towards the others of lives. I pray that we would be witnesses in our lives and then I pray that we would bear witness to your grand narrative, the grandest narrative that's ever gone out. I pray that we would internalize the words of your gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I pray that we would truly internalize, believe this, and live from that script, from that way of being. Father, convict us and move us to become more like you. Help us to consider these words, become aware of them today. And help us to become witnesses on mission, ambassadors of reconciliation. You make things right wherever you go. Help us to be agents in that. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.